and almost all those parts had very deep dimensions and also very short dimensions. One such place was the home of the New York Giants, the Polo Grounds, located on 157th Street in Upper Manhattan. Oh, the Polo Grounds. It was unique. You got off the subway and you were no, three stories higher than the field itself. It was, it was in a cavity. It was a beautiful place. The Polo Grounds was heaven. Ball player could hit a ball 490 feet and it could be caught for an out, or it could hit a ball 257 feet and it would go over the right field wall and be a home run. My God, this is a huge horseshoe. Looks like a huge horseshoe. I remember that the clubhouse was dead straight away in center field. There was bleachers on either side and an open area that led to the steps going up to the clubhouse. We had to go up those staircase out there in center field. And God, the things they threw at us, I don't even want to tell you. <laughs> there was this huge Chesterfield sign in the polo grounds. And smoke actually came out of the sign. Looked like it was coming out of the stands, but somehow or other it, it came out and then evaporated in the air. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, everybody. How are you? How's it going? What's new? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, it's our curious little podcast. It's our journey each and every week into what used to be uh, in professional sports. And uh, I welcome you to the proceedings and uh, a fun little episode we've got for you in store. The uh, dulcet tones of Alec Baldwin and uh, a bunch of uh, interviewees that you just heard that uh, talks about uh, what we're going to be talking about today. And that's the Polo Grounds, the uh, uh, the memorable stadium uh in uh, new york city that was the home to uh the new york baseball giants and we're going to get into that with our guest this week uh, Stu thornley and this is not just a story of the uh of the new york baseball giants but also that of a number of teams in this sort of uh very memorable stadium with all its sort of quirks and idiosyncrasies yeah the new york giants not only of the national league that uh, absconded for Uh, San Francisco after the 1957 season, but also the New York Giants of the Players League in 1890. Uh, It was also the home to the New York Yankees for a bunch of years from 1913 until 22. And interestingly, near the end of its life, the New York Mets, uh, a story that we've gotten into in the origins of the uh, never really to be launched Continental League and the Mets sort of becoming uh, part of the National League in 1962 because of that uh, threatened uh, a new third league, uh, but was also sort of the home of football in the New York City area for the 1920s and onward until uh, the stadium's demise. Uh, the New York Brickley Giants for a season uh, played a couple of games there in the old NFL. Uh, the New York Giants, New York football Giants, of course, until they went to Yankee Stadium in the mid-1950s, played there. It was a big home of uh, college football uh, in New York City for quite some time. Uh, and it was also uh, the home of the New York Titans and then ultimately New York Jets uh, of the AFL in the early 1960s. And and we're going to get into all of that, the sort of uh, uh, the various flavors of this uh, uh, legendary field uh, known as the Polo Grounds. And, and you're going to hear 
uh, in our conversation with Stu Thornley coming up, a couple of different iterations uh, in its early days and a couple of different hopscotches around the city. Not unlike Madison Square Garden, by the way, uh, the name stuck uh, as the stadium uh, went through uh, various uh, locations uh, and iterations, uh, but just chock full of history. Uh, and of course, uh, very much a big uh, portion of such focused on what we like to laser uh, focus on, on on this little show, which is teams and leagues no longer with us. And uh, it's less the leagues thing than it is the teams. And obviously the New York baseball giants uh, being sort of prime among them in this story about uh, the polo grounds with our guest, uh, Stu Thornley, uh, the author, by the way, uh, of a very cool book, part of the McFarland baseball historic ballparks series called the polo grounds essays and memories of new york city's historic ballpark and that's our conversation coming up with Stu in just a couple of seconds so stay tuned for that it's lots of uh, fun stuff and lots of intriguing uh, little tidbits that uh, hopefully you'll enjoy as much as i did uh, i do want to thank one of our great sponsors this week before we get to that conversation that is sportshistorycollectibles.com uh, yep, sportshistorycollectibles.com. That's the place to go to check out a very nicely curated set and a well-lit uh, array of such great, uh, like the name implies, uh, collectibles, whether they be uh, pennants or buttons or uh, stickers or programs or books, you name it, from teams and leagues no longer with us, previously domiciled teams, uh, you name it, you're going to find them uh, in this great curation of, uh, of offerings uh, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And you're going to use that promo code, of course, when you go there, right? And that's Good Seats. Yep, that's the promo code, Good Seats. You're going to get 15% off all of your purchases. And, you know, when you go to the site, you're going to see amazingly curated, but also great, well-photographed items uh, to choose. And it's not a question of of if you're going to buy or find something. It's, it's really a question of when. And interestingly, this week, I can uh, point out to you uh, one of those cool items is a Danbury Mint Polo Grounds Stadium replica. Nicely priced. Uh, it is a uh, uh, an item that uh, has been uh, well-preserved, has the uh, certificate of authentic- authenticity, he says. And as you probably know, the Danbury Mint is uh, uh, well-known for uh, its uh, replicas and uh, and other high-quality hand-painted items. And this is no uh, no exception and and perfect for this week's episode, our, our devotion, if you will, to the Polo Grounds. Yeah, it's a Danbury Mint Polo Grounds Stadium replica. It is uh, well-priced and uh, uh, amazingly photographed, uh, and you'll see that there amongst uh, an array of hundreds of other items uh, for you to choose from and uh, select and uh, consider for your purchasing uh, benefit, of course, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Use that promo code GOODSEATS and make sure that you get 15% off uh, that purchase or any other purchase uh, purchases uh, for that matter. Again, sportshistorycollectibles.com. We thank them for their sponsorship of the show as he stumbles across the uh, the promo and the, uh, and the pitch. Uh, and uh, let us uh, now also pitch to you a great conversation uh, with our friend, our new friend, uh, Stu Thornley, as we get into all the intricacies of the many facets of the polo grounds coming up. Why don't you remind our audience uh, a bit of uh, your background and how you sort of got ensnared uh, into telling uh, the story of the Polo Grounds, a legendary facility, if there ever was one in the New York metro area. I grew up in Minneapolis in the 1960s, which was a great time because it was when the twins had gotten here. In fact, I don't have any memories of 
growing up without Major League Baseball, I, when I first became aware of the sport and watching the game with my dad and my mom, it was Major League Baseball. It was the Minnesota Twins. Seeing them out at Metropolitan Stadium, but seeing them on TV at Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium, Tiger Stadium, Comiskey Park. And I started to develop an appreciation for the classic ballparks. Uh, they, they were different. And I would start to see some of the National League parks. I think I first saw Wrigley Field while watching the All-Star Game in, I think, 1962. But I loved looking at the diagrams of stadiums as well, because unlike in other sports, they're all different, uh, different distances and shapes of the outfield. And so, and I could recognize looking at a diagram of Fenway Park, and I knew what that looked like because I had watched the Twins play there on TV. And the, but the National League parks, looking at Crossley Field or Forbes Field. But when I first looked at a diagram of the polo grounds, I just couldn't picture in my mind how something like that would look. It was 257 feet down one foul line and 279 to the other, and then it went out to 483 feet in the outfield with these high fences. And so I, I started exploring for photos of the polo grounds, which right now is extremely easy. And uh, just to go on the web and you find tons of them. And the polo grounds, it was in New York, it's in the historic ballpark. There were tons of pictures of them, but it took me a little while to be able to get my hands on them. And and for I don't know how many years, uh, I just always loved any time I could get a nice picture of the polo grounds from a different angle or a different look, I would do that. And then finally in 1997, I went to the polo ground site and just got the feel for that setting. You know, I, I'd been around there because it was right across the river from Yankee Stadium, and sometimes as I'd look across the river, I'd think, yeah, the polo grounds were over there, but to actually get there and look up at, at the bluffs, Coogan's Bluff, and then uh, the Harlem River right there and get a sense of it all. And I just got fascinated enough with it that I started digging into it more and then ended up writing a book that came out in 2000 on the polo grounds, and then more recently, McFarland Publishers contacted me because they had a series of books on the classic ballparks, and they wanted me to oversee an anthology on the polo grounds with different contributors, different authors. Yeah, so it almost it almost sounds a little given that you grew up or you were uh, you know your earliest and uh, most lasting baseball memory sort of came in Minnesota. It almost feels like a uh, sort of a distant obsession almost. That's a sort yeah, of yeah. That, that'd be a good way to describe it. Uh, and it, it's distant both in that you know even when the Polo Grounds was still there, I was half a country away, and I was seven eight years old. It wasn't like I could uh, just you know go out there and see it. And it's distant now in the in the sense that. It's uh, it's in the past. It's gone. It's it's not there anymore. I can't go to it. I always say, if when I get my time machine before I go back to the grassy knoll and solve the Kennedy assassination or anything like that, I'm first going to the polo grounds. That's going to be the first place I go when I get my time machine. And I'm uh, going to go to a lot of games there and walk under the stands and around the stadium and outside it and just explore it all I can. As I was able to do with Metropolitan Stadium. There's nothing really classic about Metropolitan Stadium, uh, but it was a place that I grew up watching baseball and did get to explore, and I, I wish I would have had that chance 
to be able to do something like that, but with the uh, with the polo grounds instead, as well as many of the other classic ballparks. Well, as you started to dig into the story, right, um, I, I guess you got the sense pretty early on that uh, the polo grounds that uh, that you were aware of uh, as the uh, as you sort of experienced the National League with the New York uh, then baseball giants was not the original construct uh, or the original quote unquote polo grounds. Now, was it? Right, and I think I knew that early on that there had been previous versions of it, including what actually was a polo field just north of Central Park where the Giants first started playing in the 1880s, and which is why the, the one that I became fascinated with had the name Polo Grounds. Uh, the, the day I went there, it was on the 4th of July in 1997, so it was a good time uh, to get into Manhattan with a car since uh, you know, no, there's no nothing going on for traffic or anything. And I, when I left the the Polo Ground site beneath Coogan's Bluff, I just it just was hitting me. I want to I want to learn more about it. And I knew that there was another Polo Grounds by Central Park, but I didn't know exactly where. I would have driven down to it right then and walked around that site. But I, I had the books and I had read them on different stadiums, so I went back and and just started making notes and digging for more information and and I'd done other books in the past in sports history and at this point I decided well I guess I am researching the polo grounds I might as well be doing a book on it and and so eventually I did that and now this anthology that just came out this year. So uh, according to my little crack research they're basically I guess and maybe you can sort of help shape this for for our audience who may or may not frankly be familiar with the sort of history. There were kind of like, I guess, what, four different versions of the park? Is is that right or, or fair? That, that's how I count them. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that uh, people count them differently. And that's because the first version, which was on 110th Street, uh, which is the, the northern boundary of Central Park, from 110th to 112th Street, and then between 5th and 6th Avenue, that's where the polo field was that eventually became baseball field. And... One season, they had two diamonds on it, the one on by Fifth Avenue on the east southeast end of it, and that was the main diamond, but there was another diamond at the other end of it on Sixth Avenue, the southwest corner. So some people count that as two polo grounds. I just counted as one, but they played there from 1883 to 1889, Major League Baseball, and through the 1888 season, they then had to move, and they ended up going uptown and to beneath Coogan's Bluff, that Coogan's Hollow, but not on the site where the long-lasting park in the 20th century was. They were on the lower lot of that, uh, and then there was a new stadium built just to the north. They moved into that, and that was, to me, Polo Grounds 3, and then finally there was that, that burned in 1911 and was rebuilt, and that's the polo grounds that lasted, well, th- through the remainder of the Giants in New York and then later for two years with the New York Mets. But the one that was so familiar, just an enclosed double-decked almost all the way around except for that notch in center field with the offices and the building that separated the bleachers and, and then a, a little in-play area there. And th- that's uh, w- with its... It's, it's weird dimensions and everything about it. But, you know, I grew up knowing all about the history of baseball from reading as much as I could about the history of baseball all the time. And it's, uh, you know, be, being able to um, 
learn about, well, I certainly knew about Bobby Thompson's home run, Willie Mays's catch, Fred Merkel's boner, uh, the, all the historic things that took place there. But it was more than just what happened there on the field or anything. It was just, I think, the shape of that park. It wasn't a charming little jewel box like, say, Ebbets Field or something like that. And my guess is if you went to the stadium aficionados and said, what, what's your favorite ballpark of all time? If you could go back to any one ballpark. I'm, I'm guessing most people might say Ebbets Field. But that would be number two on my list. The first is the Polo Grounds, and they're really different. Ebbets Field was tucked into that neighborhood there, just jammed into a, a city block, and, and uh, the Polo Grounds was this massive edifice up at, in what, at the time that it moved in there, was, was almost beyond the city limits of New York. It was so far out. And uh, so, so, you know, it was, it was uh, two different kinds of stadiums, uh, but I can still appreciate them sort of in the same way uh, from little smaller ballparks like Fenway Park or Crosley Field in Cincinnati to some of these massive ones like Yankee Stadium. And I, I got to go to Yankee Stadium. They remodeled it. I uh, was able to um, get there in 1973, the last year before they remodeled. Uh, but still, the Polo Grounds is on my list that I would really like to be able to uh, go to if I could say if I ever get that time machine, that's the first place I'm going. Well, there's some very interesting uh, uh, teams uh, that we'll sort of touch on that uh, that call the Polo Grounds home, but but I think it's it's probably uh, perhaps obvious and and most um, enlightening uh, to kind of uh, get into uh, the team that I think is was uh, almost synonymous with the field uh, from mm-hmm. from almost the earliest days, although not technically the most earliest days. Because uh, the New York Metropolitans, right in back in 1880, were um, you know part of uh, of baseball around that time, but but really it was the it was the New York Giants, right? The New York baseball Giants that uh, essentially uh, were, I guess, were they the original owners of I guess version two or three or then four, and was that sort of perhaps uh, one of the main reasons why they were the longest, uh, almost consecutive through all the different iterations of the park. Well, yeah, the, the, the different landowners, too, from down on the original polo grounds, but then when they were able to uh, get, the, well, the, the, they owned the ballpark, but not necessarily the land, and that was James J. Coogan, whom the bluff is named after. Is uh, Coogan was the owner of the land, and in fact, when the wooden structure, uh, uh, which had a, pretty much of a similar sh- shape to what succeeded it, when that burned in 1911, and John Brush was the owner of the Giants at that time. Now, before he was going to invest in a steel and concrete structure, he wanted to make sure that he was going to be able to stay there. He didn't own the land, but they worked out a long-term lease so that he was able to be assured that they weren't going to pull the lease out from them. And at, at that point, yeah, they, the, the Giants, uh, w- it was um, John Brush who died and then some others who took it over. And then the Stonehams, it was Charles Stoneham. And when he died, his son Horace took it over and, and owned it to the end of their time in New York and beyond that in San Francisco. So that, that was, you're, you're absolutely right. There are different teams who played there. But the Giants are the ones that would really be identified with it. But, of course, now the Giants have been gone since 1957, so uh, there's that new breed of fans in the 1960s, and 
Uh, they're younger and still alive more than uh, the Giants fans and New York Giants fans. Uh, so a lot of people may have gone to their first games at the Polo Grounds, but seen the New York Mets, not the Giants. Right. Well, I guess it's that sort of third iteration of, of the grounds that was sort of the more, I guess, uh, nationally famous, I guess, that uh, that people sort of. Uh, right. Uh, right. And that, so we're really talking about 1890 and onward. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there is this nickname floating around. Is that when the, the term the bathtub sort of came into being? Well, yeah, because that that one that was uh, they moved into uh, in the 1890s had that bathtub shape. And in fact, some of the speculation is when that burned. Why did they go to the same thing? Why did they uh, just keep that same shape? And that's one of the chapters that's in, in this anthology on the polo grounds. John Pasteur, who grew up going to games in uh, the polo grounds, but is also an, an architect, uh, architectural expert, is written about in there and trying to explain. Uh, his suggestion was that they did the wrong thing, that, that in 1911, why didn't they build this in a more traditional uh, sense uh, that, that, like you'd see with the shapes of other ballparks. Although I'm, I'm to me, I'm glad that they did it as they did because that's what made the polo grounds to me really stand out. Well, this uh, let's call it the third version, right? So it opened in 1890, and um, it was. Uh, uh, actually, the, uh, the the second version or the second franchise with the New York Giants name, and it was playing in, in something called that we've had a couple of, uh, of episodes devoted to called the Players League uh, in 1890, yes. which was uh, a fascinating uh, journey into uh, union relations and player conditions and all that kind of stuff. It's also, though, uh, a prelude to what became sort of uh, the reason for creating the ultimate uh, longer lasting uh, structure uh, in 1911 or 1912 once uh, once the fire happened. But maybe just before we get into that, um, maybe you can describe perhaps the the difference between that sort of uh, version three uh, before the fire, and we'll get into maybe why and that, and then the version four that became sort of the uh, everlasting uh, memory in most people's minds, the Polo Grounds uh, version four. Yeah, right, and and still uh, the the interesting part is that they kept that bathtub shape. But when when you bring up the players' league, uh, it was interesting that in 1889 the Giants moved uptown and beneath Coogan's Bluff, but on the lower parcel of land that was between 150 the 155th Street Viaduct and what would have been 157th Street had there been a street. And they, they moved into that, and they carried the name Polo Grounds with them, which is what gives it that continuity through a number of different ballparks that they kept that same name. And the reason they did is they just wanted it to be a familiar name for their fans so their fans would knew, know where they were. Well, and So they played there in 1889, but in 1890, that's when the Players League came into being. The Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players formed its own league, and ended up getting most of the good players from all of the teams. And they built a new ballpark uh, that was just north of the existing one. It was called Brotherhood Park in 1890. But then uh, that league went out of business after one year, so the Giants just moved into that park, and that's how it became known as the Polo Grounds again. And that that was the one that was used in from 18, well, up through nine, the early part of the 1911 season when the fire destroyed it. That's where 
the first, you know, the World Series in which Christy Mathewson threw three shutouts. They, that, that's where those games were played in New York. Merkel's Boner in 1908, which is one of the most famous plays ever, and all of that. Uh, and then finally, with the fire and the rebuilding and steel and concrete, which the, the era of the steel and concrete stadiums probably started in 1909. And so many of these, um, and that really the classic ballpark period I see is 1909 when Scheib Park in Philadelphia was built and Forbes Field, and they started using the more permanent building materials. So the Polo Grounds was part of that. And it was, it originally wasn't, didn't come all the way around like it did in the later years. That didn't happen until about 1923, I think it was, when uh, they, they finally expanded those grandstands. And that was the look that it had for the next 40 years and the one that people are most familiar with. So let's talk about 1911 because that season, um, this is when sort of the uh, the big fire happened. And it's interesting that you're talking about sort of the the years around that time when uh, the steel and concrete kind of construction era, if you will, kind of right. really got going. And we've had a couple of other conversations on uh, places like League Park. We've got one coming up on, on, on Forbes Field. So how did this fire happen, right? It happened in, actually during the season. And in your estimation, based on what you've learned, uh, what was the source of it? And it just seems so interestingly timed, given that uh, advent and change of, of the modern ballpark of that era. Yeah, and a lot of ballparks were, that were, were hitting that fate because they were wooden and, and, you know, people would have smoked in them, cigars, and they don't know. It was the second game of the season, and they played the Philadelphia Phillies and I think it was Fred Lieb, the great writer from that time. Uh, after the second game ended with Dodie Paskert of the Phillies making this great catch in the outfield. And and then overnight, fire started and it burned. And, and Fred Lieb had some kind of a nicely worded statement on it that, you know, they could say that it was a cigar or something like that. But it was really Dodie Paskert's catch that electrified anyone. And it was waxing poetic with it. But... Uh, just as the case with a lot of other stadiums, the the one in Washington burned right about that same time, and they they built Griffith Stadium uh, then, and, and so a lot of the ballparks were having some significant fires. And I guess you, you've got wood, and you've got people in there, and they're smoking their cigars, and so they're not really sure of the the start of the fire, but just I think speculating on it might have been a cigar or something that was still smoldering, and then. Uh, you know, all of a sudden caught up with everything I was, else. I was maybe hinted at something more nefarious, right? Because now you're mentioning the D.C. issue or incident. Uh, it seems oddly timed, shall we say. Well, yeah, although I'm not really sure that there was anything with arson or any foul play. or I don't know that there's been any, any uh, real um, suggestion of that over time. Just more of, a, of an accident, carelessness, or whatever it was. I've never really heard anything that would indicate... Uh, that somebody torched it or anything like that. Well, so what happened in, in 1911 then after that fire? Because uh, my sense is that it, it was a pretty quick uh, start to uh, getting back on their feet. What what did the Giants do? Uh, and and how quickly were they uh, kind of back into playing, at least into in the 
you know, the, the shadow of what uh, was the previous stadium, because it seems like it was pretty quick beginning of construction. In, you're, you're right. It, it, it went very quickly. And first what they did, and they, they sort of came to peace with their American League team that was only a few blocks away. Uh, the Highlanders are also being known as the Yankees at that time, and they played in Hilltop Park that overlooked the Hudson River. It's where the hospital is now at about 163rd and Broadway, and the Yankees were gracious enough to invite them to use their ballpark. But it was amazing how quickly things could get going. Again, it takes a number of years now to build a baseball stadium, but they had it in a matter of months, by uh, three months. And the same thing, I mentioned Washington had burned down, and they got going in a matter of weeks. Now, I don't know exactly what the ballpark looked like in June of late June of 1911 when they started playing there again. I've gone to some, some of the old things like Engineering Record magazine that had some blueprints and things like that. Obviously, you couldn't build the whole thing in three months, but they had it on with enough seats and I, they continued expanding it during the season because they ended up in the World Series and in the, you know, in the World Series, uh, well, then it was starting to really take shape. And that version of the stadium too, uh, it was more of a, a, like a fish hook as far as the double deck stands went. It formed kind of a J because the stands on left field did not even reach into fair territory. And then it curved around and went straight out into right field, uh, but did not curve in like it later did. And on the spacing of the second deck and then on the roof, the, the decorative frieze that was on there, it was elaborate. And that was one of the things that was lost in about 1922 when they really put it into the version that, that is most familiar to people Well, they expanded both of those grandstands, those double-deck grandstands, and, and curved them towards each other and then left an opening uh, with some bleachers that were separated by a building and a notch that was in play. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, those, those decorative facings on the second deck on the roof didn't survive. All right, I got a, I got a bunch of questions to unpack here. Uh, first of all yep. is... Uh, around this time, during the reconstruction of the stadium, uh, the owner of the Giants at the time, John Brush, right? They, they, didn't, mm-hmm. they, didn't they try to rename it Brush Stadium once it was uh, in the process of being rebuilt? Yeah, in the world, there's a World Series program, too, that shows this and says Brush Stadium. And maybe he tried to put his, his name on it. He was financing it. You know, there's a story of him because he, he had a taxi uh he used a wheelchair and with his wife uh, overlooking the site and asking her if they could go forward with this. And, uh, and But it, somehow that, that Polo Grounds name, which is a much more interesting name to me than Brush Stadium, certainly more interesting than 90% of the stadium names today, which are corporate names. But uh, it was just part of the whole quirkiness, this quirky stadium with its weird dimensions and a quirky name, Polo Grounds. You know, it's a baseball stadium. What's with Polo? And you know, and you find out, okay, it went back to the to their original home, which was a polo field, and they just that name just kept following them, and it never it never deserted them, even when John Brush tried to put his own name on it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if there was ever if there ever was a time where you could kind of you know rename and 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 going forward, right? It would have been on that sort of 
what ultimately became the last construction of that stadium, albeit mm-hmm. known as Polo Grounds through its various uh, iterations and, and locations. All right. So here's another question. Uh, well, a question is more of an observation. The Giants won the pennant, you know, in 1911. I mean, talk about an interesting year. I mean, you know, you start the year off, you're playing in your your, your traditional stadium. There's a fire. You temporarily relocate uh, through the, the auspices of your, uh, your cross-river rivals, if you will. And then you're basically playing in a stadium that's being rebuilt literally around you during the season. And then you win the pennant. Uh, that's a pretty interesting story in itself, 1911. Yeah, oh yeah, it, it is, and it was a, a quite a Giants team that they had at that time. John McGraw was the manager. Christy Matthewson was still the star pitcher. Uh, maybe, maybe it makes me think a little bit of nearly a century later when the new Yankee Stadium opened in 2009, and the Yankees won the World Series in their first year, and, and the Giants played in the World Series in 1911, and uh, so so quite a year from starting it with a stadium burning down after two games and playing elsewhere and coming back in there and going on to win the pennant. But of course they had so many great teams in the, well, from the time they, they got going in the, uh, they, in the, in the 20th century, but from the time that John McGraw got there and Christy Mathewson, um, they, and, and for the next 20 years, they were the best team in the national league and they won some world series. They were in it many, many times. And then finally it was, um, they, they won the pennant three years in a row from 1921 to 1923. And in each year faced the New York Yankees, beat them the first two years. And then uh, the the third year of that was 1923. And the Yankees now had their own stadium. The Yankees had finally been sharing the polo grounds with the New York Giants. They left their, their hilltop park a few blocks away and moved in and and a lot, a lot of it is, uh, well, of course, I say the house that Ruth built is Yankee Stadium, which in many ways it was. Uh, but the, the um, one of the stories that gets going is that the Yankees climbed in popularity, which, and in, in terms of winning, which they did after they got Babe Ruth, is that uh, this made John McGraw so jealous that he said, get out of here. And that's probably not really the case. It's more the Yankees had designs on getting their own stadium anyway. The American League wanted them. This is their premier franchise. It's in New York, and they didn't want them as the second tenant in the polo grounds. Uh, but then that they they were right across the river from one another, too. You know, you say it's a subway series. Well, with that, with that it's, it wasn't even a subway. It was, you know, walk across the McCombs Dam Bridge, something I've done many times when I've been there and just wanted to go from Yankee Stadium over to see where the Polo Grounds is, and many, many times, and uh, so, but they had, you know, in the 1950s especially, if it wasn't the Subway Series with the Yankees and Giants, and it, it was with the Brooklyn Dodgers, too, something like that, uh, but the, the just the, what was happening with baseball, going into the Roaring Twenties, and the Giants were kind of going into that being still the dominant team in New York, but that didn't last too long. And that was because of Babe Ruth and then Lou Gehrig and the Yankees starting their dominance, dominance that lasted for about 45 years. Yeah, I think people forget, uh, you know, especially the historians who look back, right, that uh, the Giants and the Yankees were uh, co-tenants of, of the Polo Grounds from, uh, right. I guess it was, what, 1913 to about 1922, Yep. Um, and so what an interesting time 
uh, to be a baseball fan there, especially if you lived uh, in Manhattan or nearby or relatively easily get, could get to uh, the stadium because basically you're pretty much guaranteed uh, a game just about every day. Uh, to, you know, from and both leagues at that. All right, here's my last question on this little, this little mm-hmm. zone of 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 the history that we're getting into here. So, explain to me then, uh, given that a brand new stadium is being built in the midst of this 1911 season, uh, and arguably the chance, and maybe it wasn't a chance because of, of the sheer speed by which a decision and or construction began. Why the field dimensions uh, in such a wacky configuration, right? You you hinted right. at it before, right? You're talking about, you know, lines that are literally 200 some odd feet to the left and to the right. And and this this massive cavernous, not even sort of diamond uh, or, or baseball friendly shaped cavern uh, of an outfield that uh, itself has uh, odd idiosyncrasies. Why this shape? That has been kind of one of the mysteries that, that I think John Pasteer, uh, who, as I mentioned, grew up there and also was a stadium architecture expert. In this chapter that he wrote in this anthology on the polo grounds, he said that the 1911 fire was an opportunity to correct serious flaws in the ballpark's layout. But then he said John Brush was in poor health and the speed of rebuilding and reoccupancy was a priority. Uh, and and his, his words were sheer size and a limited sprinkling of cosmetic detail were among his goals. And in haste, he chose to perpetuate uh, the the old-fashioned design ideas embodied in the burned-down park. So he, he sort of puts it on John Brush, both his illness, he had ataxia, and maybe was somewhat limited in just what he was able to take on, but wanting, having that desire to get this going again in a matter of months, which he did, and just kept that same shape rather than, as this past year said, rather than assessing the situation afresh and considering seating and field layouts that were better shaped to the needs of the sport. So while many, many people, not just John Pasteur, and if you look at it from that perspective, uh, what Pasteur writes makes a lot of sense. This was weird. This was... Why would you do it this way? But to me, that's if, if they had just built more a standard-looking stadium, even something like Yankee Stadium, and there was no standard-looking stadium that was being built at that time, but there was still, uh, you know, whether you're going to go to Forbes Field or, or something like that, stuff that uh, at least had some kind of similar, just uh, de- decent distances down the foul lines and, uh, a more of a you know circular shape, not necessarily uh, symmetric or anything like that, but just uh, moving it around that way. Uh, if they had done that, you know, I'm, I'm just guessing I would have never had the same fascination with it. I probably still would have loved it as one of the old class ballparks, like Ebbets Field or Crosley Field or something like that. But to me, it was a shape, and I think my the fascination really grabbed me when I first looked at just just a diagram, just a in a little booklet that they you know, my dad brought home that he picked up at at a store where they gave him out and and looking at at all the different uh, Connie Mack Stadium which which had been Shide Park uh, and then after looking at all of these, seeing the polo grounds and and saying now even among all these ballparks that stand out with their unique dimensions and shapes. 
this one really stands out. So I, I'm, I'm glad they did it that way, even though you could argue, certainly from an architectural standpoint, that it was not a good way to go. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause. And we want to remind you that our friends at Audible are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. When you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. And uh, it's something you can cancel at any time, and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be worth using your credit for. One, of course, is The Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cromet. You could use your credit for that book, and it's a great sort of interview style background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J from all sides. But if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. And uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the link. And that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy in perpetuity for as long as your device lives, uh, the downloaded book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you joining our conversation once again. You want to point out a couple of the uh, of the quirks that kind of stand out. We kind of mentioned the left field and the right field being so short, but there was also as the as the stadium was further being built out in in the years following, uh, there were dub- two decks right and some porches that uh, not only was it short down those left and right hand sides, but uh, left field sides and right field sides. You had uh, the porch that actually encroached even further, which arguably made it even easier to make a home run, right? Among other and things. It- and it was, and that was on the left field side. The second deck uh, right. on right field was pretty much Correct. flush yeah. with a fence. But there was an overhang of, what was it, 21, 21 feet. That's an incredible overhang of the second deck in left field. Now, people who are a little, little younger but still old enough to remember Tiger Stadium from 20 years ago, Tiger Stadium had that in right field with the second deck that overhung first, but it wasn't as dramatic. It wasn't as far out. And I'm not sure if it really, if if there could have ever been a a fly ball of the angle at Tiger Stadium where uh, it it scrapes the second deck when it would otherwise not have gone into the first deck. But that was definitely the case at the Polo Grounds when it hung out there 21 feet 
And when you take a foul line and put it down there at an angle, John Pasteur has pointed out that the effective distance was, was almost more like 27 feet because with these very short distances down the foul line, um, the, the fences then went out at a 135-degree angle. Uh, that's quite, what is that, obtuse, as they'd say. Um, look, look at most stadiums today, or when I go to Target Field, and, which is a great stadium, and watch the Twins now, um, you know, the foul lines go out there about 330, 340, whatever it is. But then the fences are perpendicular to the foul line. They go out at a 90-degree angle. Well, here it was going out at a 135-degree angle, which meant if you pulled that ball, you could get an easy home run. But if you didn't pull it, if you pulled, if you sent it more to left center or right center, it probably wasn't going to be going over the fence because those distances from being very short at the foul lines got enormous as the fence went out to the power alleys. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing. I mean, you're talking about uh, left field was 279 ish, and I think uh, right field was 258 ish. Uh, yeah. And then, what dead center is like 483 feet, right? Which is that little nook. And, right. You know, in between that, uh, or besides each side of that, is 450 feet. I mean, it's almost twice as long. Yeah, and you know, this was game one of the 1954 World Series epitomized that more than anything on on how the park could help or hurt because that's the one that Vic Wirtz hit this tremendous drive to center field that Willie Mays made his great catch on. And, you know, people sometimes say that was 460 feet. Uh, it's probably more about 400 feet. But he was able to have room to catch that ball over his shoulder and then make a great catch in. So that robbed Vic Wirtz, and it kept the Indians from taking the lead in the eighth inning. And then later, Dusty Rhodes steps up, and he hits a pop of 260 feet. I mean, sometimes when you go to the ballpark, whatever ballpark you're in, just kind of look down the line a little bit and imagine where 260 feet is. You know, you can kind of figure it out. You know that first base is 90 feet down the line, and if it's uh, the right field fence is 330 feet away, and kind of figure in there where two, 260 feet would be and it'll just blow your mind looking at that and saying really they had a fence that close and that's what Dusty Rhodes did he hit this home run to win the game that was just a pop-up that went over that uh, so that that shows how the park could could give us and take us I guess and uh, but the the center field and, and where Willie Mays caught Vic Wirtz's drive it wasn't where that notch was was going out. He was still a little bit short of the warning track, uh, and to his left as he was running out there, that's where the notch went. There were various distances to the uh, to the fence listed with the New York, when the New York Mets were there. I think the di- distance was listed at 475, but for most of the years at 483. You had stairways up to the clubhouse that were in play. Uh, you had the Eddie Grant monument that was out there that was in play and and balls could bounce around it. But, you, you know, just figure if a ball ever bounced into that notch, it was probably going to be an inside-the-park home run, even if it, even if the center fielder had to go navigating a, a monument or a stairway to get to the ball. It's just uh, if a ball got out there. I don't know if anything really ever hit there on the fly. There were a few batters who were able to hit home runs into the bleachers out there, Hank Aaron, Joe Adcock, Luke Easter, and Lou Brock, who hit, hit him straight away 
Senate to the point that they were even able to to get into the bleachers. But where that notch was and why why it was there, I you know who's to say when they when they remodeled that stadium in 1922-23 and so they put the office building out there. But why why did they not not just keep that fence? It's just one more quirk that adds to the fascination of the stadium. Yeah, and the um, my sense is the bullpens were also in play in deep uh, left and deep right fields as well. That had to be interesting on a couple of occasions. Yeah, and of course we've got to know bullpens as they uh, still are in some ballparks and that are down that are in play but in fall territory. And with the polo grounds, the bullpens were in fair territory. I'm not sure if there's really any other stadium where that was the case. But on the other hand, they were so far out there, it was probably, you know, when you get into the corner, 430, 440 feet out there, that uh, it didn't really matter if, if uh, you know, pitchers were warming up. If they saw a ball coming out their way, I suppose they could just get out of the way. But it, that that's they were in the field of play. Uh, in fair territory. Yeah, that distance, they might actually be a few more seconds actually to get out of the way because it's so deep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you could see it coming. So I got one other quirk that that stands out in my mind. I'm sure there there were others, especially, and I'm not having been there or experienced it as uh, this is before my time. But it, do I have this right that the outfield actually sloped downward from the infield, and and that it was hard for people, say, in the dugouts to to even see perhaps uh, some of the more distant fielders as they got sort of closer to the the fences. Yeah, although I don't know that that's one of a kind with the polo grounds, although it might have been more pronounced, and that if you were sitting in the dugout and you wouldn't even see the outfielder's feet. But a lot of fields were were crowned in a certain way to to help with drainage, and some of it there with the polo grounds might have been uh, a little more than you would see in most ballparks. So th- there was some unevenness or crowning to the field maybe in the center so that uh, I, I don't know if it really ever affected any outfielders or anything on catching a ball. It was probably more of an issue at Crossley Field in Cincinnati where they had that that incline and uh, you know there's some of the old ballparks and in fact Houston with a new ballpark that opened in 2001, um, Enron Field now Minute Maid Park um, they had that on center field, just to put that in there where it was uh, sloped upward. On, on, I guess for safety reasons, about two, three years ago, they finally eliminated that. Uh, so that, that probably, some of those things in some of the other ballparks probably affected the outfielders a little bit more. What were you able to tell from uh, the writings uh, that you corralled in this book and your own sort of investigation and learnings and, and passion, shall we say, uh, about the fan experience, uh, seats, uh, uh, sight lines, mm-hmm. uh, conveniences, uh, and and we can we'll get into maybe the later years of the stadium, which w- would add to its not tremendous you know environment. But but in its day, uh, was this a I don't know a fan friendly kind of environment slash experience? You know that's probably depends on who you talk to. I mean, for me, it would be if I could. If I could go there and and see it, I would, because I'd just be fascinated with it. But I, you know, in my imagination of going back in a time machine, I always imagine myself having a pretty nice seat, maybe right up there in the second deck behind home plate, something like that. But there probably were a lot of bad seats in there. And the shape of that kind of a ballpark, too, means unless you are sitting right behind home plate, 
you're going to have your view of one of the outfield corners cut off. That's and that's not unique to the polo grounds. A lot of the stadiums like that. If if you get off onto the right field side, now all of a sudden you can't really see the right field corner, or and vice versa. So, uh, but the first book I did on the polo grounds, I, I took quotes from two different people on it who had been there and and were writers and had different perspectives on it. Roger Creamer, a great biographer, uh, you know, wrote Babe Ruth's biography, and, and he said it was a terrible place to watch a ball game. It was like watching it through a, a picket fence. And, uh, and, and of course, there were posts in there, as there are in the, were in a lot of the stadiums, and, and some stadiums still are at Fenway Park or Wrigley Field if you're sitting under under the deck or under the roof, you might be behind a post. Uh, Fred Stein wrote a book called Under Coogan's Bluff and grew up in New York, and he loved the place, and he said it was a, a great place to watch a ball game. Uh, that, that So, you know, you, I guess you talk to people. A friend of mine here in St. Paul grew up in New York. A lot of games at the Polo Grounds, and he liked it. And, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if people even – appreciated the history uh, or the uniqueness of it at that time. Uh, we're nostalgic now, and it's, you know, I think so many of us just, boy, I wish I could have been there. And uh, people at that time, this probably is a, is a place to watch a ball game, and what mattered most to them was what kind of a view they could get, how far away they were. They had a post blocking them without necessarily appreciating how, how historic it was or unique. And one of the things with this anthology is that I wrote to about 240 players who had played there and I got about 70 responses, which I was, I I was pretty happy to get that many responses and from the players too. And they might've been looking at a little bit different, a pitcher who gets victimized by a short home run probably hates the place, but some like Al Worthington who pitched here with the Minnesota twins, uh, he pitched for the Minneapolis Millers baseball team that played in Nicollet Park, which was this nice ballpark before my time. Uh, he he threw the final pitch in that, and I've corresponded with him and talked to him, and he had an appreciation for being in Nicollet Park in Minneapolis, 60-year-old ballpark in his final game, and he had that same appreciation when he pitched for the New York Giants and was pitching in the polo grounds. Uh, not all the players did. So just from the players and the fans, I think you can get different opinions on it. Um, well, this is also probably an appropriate time to sort of bring up, uh, uh, perhaps then from a fan experience in baseball, questionable maybe, depending on your perspective and your uh, you know, your, uh, your experiences at the park, about another sport though, right, that, uh, that yeah. you know, looked at the stadium as being viable and that's football and in particular the new york football giants um Mm -hmm. i I get the sense that as especially as the park kind of got fully you know built and 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 surrounded truly uh fully bathtub eyes if you will um that it actually wound up becoming uh a bit more uh favorable not only in terms of the shape of a football gridiron uh in the uh in the footprint of, of the park, but also from a fan, uh, a fan perspective, the ability to sort of have better views for football than uh, even baseball. Yeah. The polo grounds was probably different than most baseball stadiums at that point. And until we got into the 1960s, 
and they started building these multi-purpose stadiums that could be used for both baseball and football. And uh, for the most part, the National Football League was always confined to playing in a baseball stadium. And it might not work real well because how you set up baseball stadium or most of the seats were for baseball, uh, it didn't mean they were going to be sideline seats for football. But the polo grounds, because of that shape, was able to do that. It was able to ha- have uh, more of a rectangular shape. Uh, they they didn't build it for that reason in 1911 in that shape. Uh, but it worked out, may have been a better football stadium because you had double decks on both sides that were running along the sidelines. Uh, and Yankee Stadium, you know, you, they, they could put a gridiron in there and but even where you had most of the seats, they, they could be a long way away uh, from the field. So the polo grounds for football, even though it wasn't built to accommodate, it probably had the, among those classic ballparks the best shape for football. A lot of football games there, too. You know, Army and Navy and, and the, the Four Horsemen got their name there. Grantland Rice wrote about against the, the blue-gray sky of the polo grounds. The, the Four Horsemen wrote again. Uh, so there was a lot of football, a lot of a lot of sports all around. Boxing, it was a boxing mecca, and uh, so many different things. And that wasn't unusual. You, you could look at the same thing with the Yankee Stadium, all the different kinds of events that were in there as well. All right. Well, um, uh, and I mean, obviously it was a mecca for uh, college football when it was uh, more of a thing, I guess, in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, with the Columbia and Fordham, and there was even a bowl game there. I think in 1961, the uh, the uh, long forgotten Gotham Bowl. Oh, okay. I didn't even. Yeah. I, I yes. I hey. I think I forgot about that too. We go deep here. Um, yeah. So uh, why don't we uh, maybe get into I guess uh, the I guess the sort of the later years of, mm-hmm. of the stadium because. You know, it's it's not just only a, a story of modernization and, and next generation stadia and all that kind of stuff, but it's also uh, tied into uh, things that we've also talked about else, uh, elsewhere in this this show. You know, things like expansion and and relocation and and greener pastures, so to speak, and and franchises and cities either bending over backwards or or not. But maybe before we jump into that, maybe a little bit of a, a prelude. It seems like that uh, the Giants could do no wrong. In the, uh, I guess, the early part of the the 50s, I mean, uh, they were uh, doing quite well uh, on the field, but then kind of collapsed and and maybe set things in motion, not only for them as a franchise, but also, I guess, the state of the stadium as well. What happened after World War II is that places like Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds and some other places, which, when they were built, relied on public transportation and were in good spots for that, we're now not favorable spots for a lot of reasons. But after World War II, more and more people got cars. With cars, there were highways. With cars and highways, there was the suburban flight. And the people were getting out of those areas. They became known as decaying areas. And I, I kind of hate using that term because I know what that means, a, a de- decaying area or an area in decay. Uh, it's kind of maybe a euphemism for getting blacker. So the white flight had taken place, and that meant that these people who had escaped to the suburbs uh, were nervous about coming back to those areas. And also, when they did come back, they wanted to have massive parking lots 
rather than caring about being able to take the bus or the subway to the stadium. But that was a, a trend that was happening with a lot of the stadiums where they were getting placed in areas out of the central city uh, to where they could, they could have places that were surrounded by a, a big parking lot. In the mid-50s, it was Minneapolis business interests that decided they needed to build a new stadium if they wanted to lure a major league team here. And they put that stadium not in Minneapolis, but in the suburb south of, of Minneapolis. And it wasn't even so much to try to accommodate St. Paul as it was that this was just a good place for a stadium. It was in what had been a, a farm or a cornfield, and so you could build a stadium with plenty of room put a parking lot around it. When Milwaukee built its new stadium earlier in the 50s, uh, a little bit outside of downtown, and that was the trend that that teams were going to uh, just as society changed and became more car-oriented and as people were were getting to the suburbs and living out there and not wanting to come into a congested area, which which is, is seen as being run down. So the, the Dodgers in Brooklyn, and with one of the greatest ballparks ever, well, they definitely were on their last years there. They were trying to get another ballpark in, in New York, and the Giants were talking about and exploring different different places that it was about time to get out of the polo grounds. And they ended up both going to the West Coast. And it looked like that was the end of both stadiums. Uh, they, they used both for the next few years for different things. They put in, like, uh, they could play, do midget cars in there. They got tracks inside there. But uh, Ebbett Field, this lasted a few more years and was torn down in about 1960. And for whatever reason, the polo grounds hung around and then got a new life. When the, with the Giants and Dodgers leaving New York, there's no National League Baseball there. And Dodgers and Giants fans weren't about to start becoming Yankee fans. And, uh, and that's what really pushed expansion first with this talk of a formation of, of a third major league, the Continental League. And so much of that was prompted by wanting to get another team into New York. And then it, it finally worked out that Instead of the Continental League, the American and National League teams, uh, leagues decided to expand and, and got a National League team in New York and started working on a new stadium in, in Queens, uh, Shea Stadium. Uh, the, the Mets were going to need a place to play for until that was built, so it was planned that they would play there in 1962. And then when the construction wasn't done on the new ballpark, they ended up playing there in 1963 so in a lot of ways that was nice many more people got a chance to see the polo grounds with the new york mets and experience it that way and uh while ebbett field got torn down the polo grounds did get a couple more years out of it yes yeah, so it's also interesting too that i mean like the giants won uh the world series in 1954 yet they only drew uh 1.1 million fans uh, which was relatively low given their stature at the time and their, their their play. But I think you brought up a point earlier on, I think it's important to underline it here, is that while they the Giants and, and um, at the time Horace Stoneham owned uh, not only the team but the stadium, they did not own the land under it or around it. And thus uh, arguably uh, sort of helped create, despite a, a, a championship team, you know, a difficult... Uh, or, or shall we say, unattractive or increasingly unattractive proposition 
uh, to, to schlep out to the polo grounds and watch a game, I guess. Yeah, well, it was uh, the, the way it even survived to be there for a couple of years for the Mets uh, was a lot with eminent domain and the city because they, they were already building some high rises around that area just to the north of the polo grounds, which had been the subway yards that was turned into housing. And then um, eventually that overtook the polo grounds. So, uh, but with the Giants too, they, they had Willie Mays. They had some good teams, but um, in the, the, their last World Series, uh, until many years after they'd been in San Francisco, it was, it was in 1954. They had won the pennant in 1951. Um, and, and, you know, I guess you could say of that team, too, that they were, they were moving forward to, like the Dodgers, integration. Uh, the, the Dodgers deserved to be as good as they were in the 1950s. They probably deserved to win more World Series, but they might have been the best team of the 1950s. You don't really recognize it because they still had only one World Series championship there. Uh, but uh, the New York Giants and the National League in general was, was moving better on any integration, which, I mean, is just the right thing to do to begin with. But secondly, they were rewarded for it. The teams that that would integrate and give chances to players who, because of their skin color, hadn't been able to play before. They helped them to make winning teams. But still, they, the, the Dodgers have just gotten to be so strong. Uh, and, and for their final years of the Dodgers in Brooklyn and the Giants in New York, it was the Dodgers who had become the dominant team in the league. Yeah, I think it's uh, so. It's interesting when they did leave in in '57, obviously with the the Dodgers uh, uh, around exactly the same time. Um, it, it seems like Stoneham's, uh, you know, the, it was sort of a double whammy. Uh, not the play of the, the baseball giants as much as well. I mean, their attendance was suffering for for whatever reasons. Maybe the play, certainly post uh, forty, excuse me, fifty four, uh, was not nearly at the same level. But also the New York Football Giants had also left for Yankee Stadium. So you kind of lost that revenue stream too. And and my understanding is that Stoneham really didn't have any other sort of, you know, source of income. He wasn't sort of the sort of that proverbial, you know, magnate owner with uh, unlimited resources or 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 money from other industries, right, to sort of keep himself afloat and stuff. So it almost felt it feels like there was much more of a compromise uh against him if you will uh to to make that move. Yeah, because uh, and that wasn't uncommon as Probably the same thing with Walter O'Malley and, you know, Connie Mack had gotten out of baseball by that time. But uh, where you had, uh, the, the, yeah, the revenue stream that you bring up with the, the Giants, the football Giants leaving as well. Stoneham had a line. He was, well, anybody who moves a team is, is a villain. You know, mention the O'Malley team in Brooklyn or something like that. Uh, but Stoneham did have a quote in there when he was talking about moving the Giants, and somebody said, "What about the kids?" And he said, "Yeah, you know, I feel I feel bad for the kids, but I haven't seen their dads around here too much lately." And I think that was a good a good observation or a good remark by him because it it uh, it softened it a little bit. People realized, yeah, you know what, that's. That's really the case. Uh, you know, this guy does have to have fans to survive. He cares about the kids, but he said, I don't see their dads here. Uh, so it was something that he was going to have to, if he didn't get a new stadium, he was more set on moving, I think, than O'Malley was. But in, 
And here in Minnesota, where I am, uh, I can go through a lot of stuff back at that time where people were hoping that the Giants would move here. Uh, And there was a connection because the Giants owned the minor league team, the Minneapolis Millers. They owned the the, uh, the Millers who were playing the original tenants of Metropolitan Stadium. Uh, That stadium was built to lure a major league baseball team here, but in the meantime, it was used by the minors. And it's, it, I, it is likely if he hadn't gone to San Francisco uh, and he would not have even looked at San Francisco if not for Walter O'Malley looking at Los Angeles and California and, and trying to lure another team out there. Uh, it, it's a good possibility that they would have moved to Minnesota. They would have been out of there one way or the other. All right, well, let's get to, to the, the, the very last sort of uh, part of this. And I'd be remiss uh, uh, in particular uh, with our friends uh, Bill Reisick and uh, Bob Letterer, uh, where we've had previous conversations. Uh, the New York uh, Titans of the American Football League and then, of course, then becoming uh, in 1963 the New York Jets, also like the Mets uh, in anticipation of this uh, new flushing stadium uh, that uh, was delayed and didn't get open until 1964. But it's just, it's just really interesting to me, and I grew up in the New York area, so I, I have a very vague understanding of this. This is certainly still before uh, my time, but uh, obviously the the teams, uh, you know, and their lasting legacies were, were very much etched in in my my uh, understanding and memory. Um, that the fact that the Polo Grounds really kind of was out there, kind of just staying languishing uh, without much use for three years. Uh, mm-hmm. For the Mets and the Titans, ultimately Jets, uh, to use it almost feels like it was, um, I don't know, uh, luck. Uh, knowing, you know, that uh, this AFL was sort of uh, be- becoming a thing in the Continental League, and then obviously the that be- netting out into a new expansion baseball franchise, it almost feels like kind of just dumb luck uh, and great fortune that this, uh, albeit uh, falling apart stadium, an abandoned stadium. Uh, was still there actually to to house these uh, these folks until uh, a new stadium was ultimately built. Well, when, when the Mets uh, were getting farmed, first of all, they needed, and it's it's like this just about to this day, where if an area wants to get a team, it's got to be able to produce a stadium, and the, the, it wasn't always that easy to get the approval through all the places that needed to be approved. Uh, that was the New York State Assembly and everything else for Shea Stadium, but when they did it. Uh, and where are the Mets going to play? And the New York Yankees said, there's no way we're letting them into Yankee Stadium. Uh, and then so that the Polo Grounds was the only other place, but it was the New York City Board of Estimate in March of 61 uh, that decided to demolish the stadium to allow the New York Housing Authority to, to, to erect more of the housing projects there. And fighting that off and, and one of the things you mentioned, the Titans coming in, they already had a lease to use the Polo Grounds through the end of 1961. You're talking about luck. You're absolutely right. Because it was in March of 61 that the New York City Board of Estimate uh, wanted to demolish it. Well, they couldn't at least through the end of the football season because the Titans had a lease. And so they, they couldn't proceed until at least 1962. And then it was understanding the plight of the Mets and needing a temporary home. They delayed the housing project for at least another year. So that, that all does tie together. And the, uh, the, this, the great history of the, the Titans and, 
And they, they did get renamed as the Jets in 1963, the final year they played in the Polo Grounds. But when they, they made it after the 1968 season to the Super Bowl with Joe Nemeth, that brought back a lot of the history of the American Football League and that team. And uh, talking about, say, Don Maynard and, and, and uh, George Sauer, who had been Titans, and they're talking about the, the bridge back to when the team was the Titans and playing in the Polo Grounds. But that just by itself, the formation of the American Football League, uh, and then that that was a pretty natural place for the new AFL team to go. That it was that that it may have helped to extend that for a couple of more years for the Mets to play there. Yeah, I just it's it's just interesting that it's it's a new sort of wrinkle on on the story of those teams as as we've investigated them and and uh, and understood them and and we've in, we've kind of tackled the Continental League and 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 what that begot with the what begat with the Mets. Uh, and obviously the Titans becoming the Jets and the AFL in general. Um, you, you literally and figuratively uh, had two teams <laughs> in two mm-hmm. very major pro sports leagues playing in effectively a stadium that's been uh, declared uh, uh, <laughs> uninhabitable and, uh, and, and is to come down. And, Irony is just know, uh, not even the right word. Well, they had to put something back into that stadium to be able to and get it ready for baseball, but the fact that they had to kind of clean it up and do some things just to get the football team in there. So it, it, you raise a good point when you talk about the importance of the significance of the New York Titans and the American Football League on the impact that that had, that it kept that stadium uh, where the Mets could move into it because there was a lease, but because they had already had to do some upgrading for the football team, and, and there was a lot more work to be done to after five years of no baseball in there to get that back as a baseball stadium as well. So to wrap all this up, and in the book, obviously, you've got a lot of different viewpoints, and you've sort of overseen it with your editing and, and your own contributions and your own uh, uh, story and interest in, in the stadium itself. What are the, you know, and maybe looking back through a bit of a hagiography, right, because, you know, Lord knows that the stadium was not... Uh, a quote-unquote gem. Uh, it was probably quirky and memorable. Uh, give it that, right? But uh, you know, it was not an architectural wonder per se. You know, I think most people, especially in the later years, would uh, would argue it wasn't even that. Uh, mm-hmm. What uh, what takeaways do you sort of get? What, if you, there's a storyline to kind of thematically sum up here, I mean, was it uh, just uh, a stadium just full and uh, and right for its time? What would you sort of take away from sort of the, the the memories and the lasting, and what makes the polo ground such a a memorable structure in people's minds? Well, that might be the thing, as you said, it wasn't a gem like you would think of as Ebbets Field, and was it even a stadium of its time? Uh, but that's what gives it its memorability, at least certainly for somebody who wasn't going to games or all the time and caring if I ended up in a bad spot where I couldn't see the game. For, for my eyes, it's, it's from a distance of time that I can look back on it so nostalgically, and so many other people can too. But, uh, you know, people, I, th- I think, first of all, people have great memories of where they first started going to baseball games. And for as I talk to people who grew up in New York and, some of them might have been going to games at all of the stadiums in New York, but if, if some were attached to the Giants, that's where they went. 
and that that's what sticks with them. It's it's not just that stadium itself. It's where they spend a, a great part of their time as a youth. For me, it would be Metropolitan Stadium, not an architectural classic of anything. That started to hit me about 10 years ago with the Metrodome uh, closing. And the Metrodome was a functional but uncharming place. But as, as people of a uh, little later generation, were, I, I discovered they were just as nostalgic about the closing of the Metrodome as I was about Metropolitan Stadium, as people might have been about Ebbets Field or the Polo Grounds, because that was attached to their childhood and going to the games with their parents and their grandparents and the memories of that, whether it was the great stadium like the Polo Grounds or Ebbets Field or even Metropolitan Stadium or Cruddy Stadium like the Metrodome. I think a lot of the nostalgia emanates from that. We, we see, you know, baseball fans, so many of us, we, we are most nostalgic about the time that we first got introduced to the game and first started going to the games. So the Polo Grounds was there for that, but it's, it still is in, the, in an era of the classic ballpark where every stadium was distinct, uh, the polo ground still somehow stood out from even any of those molds. All right, cool stuff. Uh, as always, this is uh, really cool and interesting stuff. Uh, and the book is uh, called The Polo Grounds, Essays and Memories of New York City's Historic Ballpark. Uh, it is written, of course, by our guest, Stu Thornley. Thank you, Stu. And uh, it is part of a series uh, from our friends at McFarland uh, and Company, the uh, publishers of uh, lots of books that we featured on the show in the in the months past. Uh, and that series is called the McFarland Historic Ballparks Series. Uh, there are a bunch of them out there, Forbes Field and Ebbets Field and Comiskey Park and a few others. And uh, this one, the Polo Grounds, obviously uh, a very interesting journey into uh, that series and uh, you can find that of course where all uh, good books are found but of course you can uh, click on it at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com just search up this episode with Stu Thornley Uh, you'll see a convenient link there and you can uh, be whisked away to Amazon Uh, give us a few shekels as you also help uh, Stu by selling a couple of books as well uh, that's always the, the easiest way to do so. And of course, you're going to find all of our past episodes on the, on the website as well. Again, goodseatsstillavailable.com, as well as, you know, all the other fun stuff in terms of, uh, say, our social media feeds. Like on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Facebook. We've got a page uh, devoted to us there. Uh, you'll find links to uh, sending us email, which you can also do directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also uh, sign up for our weekly newsletter. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. And there's great photography. We got nice pictures there for all of our various episodes and a couple of other uh, occasional links to uh, cool items that we've seen or curated or or have relationships with uh, with some of our, our great sponsors. So just that's the treasure trove. You're going to find it all there at goodseatsstillavailable.com, including, of course, the book The Polo Grounds uh, by our pal Stu Thornley buy a few copies for your friends and loved ones. Why don't you? Uh, before we run, I want to say that the clip that you heard at the very beginning of the show, I want to give a, a credit to that. It's called Baseball's Golden Age, and uh, it was uh, out there from uh, Fox Sports Network, I want to say about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, it's a, a three-part series. You can find that also on Amazon and other places, a DVD set. It's a concoction of 
not only remembrances of, of old ballparks and, and those kinds of things, but uh, also home movies. A lot of all the most most of the, the, the footage uh, was uh, home movies, uh, color films uh, from players and administrators and uh, and owners from back in the day. And we're talking like in the 40s and the 30s, uh, you know, some really rare stuff. And uh, I highly encourage you to check that out as well. And I also highly encourage you to check out our friends, our good friends at Podfly Productions. Uh, and in particular, of course, the good doctor. You know him, you love him. You can't live without him. His name is Jerry Payne, Dr. Jerry Payne. He's uh, the guy who helps uh, put all of our pieces together, and he does so very well each and every week. Despite my attempts to drive him insane, uh, he still comes through it all uh, smelling like a rose. And you can find out more about him and the uh, Podfly production uh, process if you're interested in getting into the world of podcasting. Uh, I would uh, question your sanity, but uh, go for it if you want to. You'll find out about Podfly at podfly.net. All right. Uh, I am done for this week. I appreciate uh, you listening uh, this far, and we uh, look forward to talking to you next week. And until then, let's see. I guess the box office is now closed. So thanks. Take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. The Yankee Stadium in New York City's borough of the Bronx is losing a famous neighbor. The Polo Grounds, playing field of hallowed memory, is about to give way to a housing development. Thus will end one of the most famous chapters in baseball history. The Polo Grounds was the longtime home of the New York Giants, and for the last two years, the stamping ground of the Mets. Today, the cry, play ball, rings through the stands for the last time. Only 1,752 fans are on hand to see the Phillies whip the Mets 5-1, to and it's a quiet wait. The Mets have a firm grip on last place, 45 games back at the Los Angeles Dodgers. That doesn't discourage the old master, Casey Stengel. His number 37 is prominent at the pitcher's mound at each crucial moment. Stengel's Mets may have lost on the base pass, but they won the battle of the box office. This year, they drew a million 80,000 fans at home, and as a double play ends the final game in the ninth, the Mets can find comfort in this fact. In 1963, they drew 150,000 more fans through the turnstiles than they did last year, their first season. Now, except for an occasional football game this fall, crowds will no longer pour into the polo grounds. The home of McGraw, Terry, Matherson is no more. With his wife, Edna, Casey says farewell. It seems that the only thing in baseball that goes on forever is old Mars Casey himself. Thank you.